Now, we're joined by another live guest on this morning's show. Um, her name is Judy Murphy, and she is originally from Tulla, and she's now a journalist with the Connacht Tribune newspaper, and she's here to chat to us about her career in journalism and much more. So, Judy Murphy, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Dara. Thank you very much, now for coming down all the way from Galway this morning. <laughs> Lovely to be here. <laughs> Um, so, come here, before we get into your career uh, in journalism, talk to me about uh, your life growing up on a farm in Tulla. Yeah, I grew up outside Tulla, a mm-hmm. place called Derry Moor, um, and there were four sisters, and uh, my father died when we were young, uh, but we still have the farm, and it's there. My mother died a few years ago, she was in Raheen Nursing Home, where she was so well looked after. Um, and we're, my sisters, two of my sisters still live locally. One is kind of betwi- betwixt and between. And um, we have strong connections. One is involved in the local drama group in Tulla, the local history society. So I'm up and down quite a lot because I have nieces and nephews yes. living locally. Yes. And I was very lucky. Um, when I started school, it was just as free education, secondary and tertiary education was coming in. But... Um, we went to a tiny local school called Fort Anne, which was about a mile I, and a I half. I know it very well, yeah. Do you know yeah. it? And our teacher there was a woman called Kathleen Hayes, who is now Kathleen Minogue from yes, Minogue's right. Pub in Tulla. Yeah. And we could not have had, uh, I certainly couldn't have had a better start in education than the teaching that's that great, Kathleen Hayes great, gave yeah. me. And it, yeah. it kind of gave us curiosity about geography and history and politics and stuff like that. So it was a great basis for everything that followed. And my parents were very much into education, so there were always books always newspapers, stuff like that around the house. And, of course, growing up in a farm, I know myself, I'm, I'm living on a farm and there's always jobs to be done, so always I have no doubt you, you were out and about all the time. Always jobs to yeah. be done, yeah. Hay yeah. to be given out, calves to be fed, <laughs> cow houses to be cleaned out, and sta- you know, stables and stuff yes, to be cleaned yes. out, and the dung heap and stuff. We didn't have slatted sheds in those days. It yes. wasn't quite so sophisticated. But my father had a thrashing machine, and they had reaper and binder and stuff, and they used to go out on hire cutting um, hay and cutting corn mostly and doing thrashing and stuff like that. So there was always a great, um, there was a great community spirit and we had great neighbours and we have great neighbours and particularly when my father died, our neighbours were so good to us at that time. Uh, So we were, I mean, we grew up in really pre-social media, all that sort of stuff. We might be killing each other, but we were killing each other out in the fields or wherever. Nobody was kind of privy to what was going on. It was a much simpler time, I think, in a way. Not not as well off, obviously, but less complicated in terms of what teenagers and kids have to navigate these days. So as as you stated there, you went to Fortan National School Mm. and you went on then to secondary school. Um, When it came to the Leaving Cert, when did you realise that I want to become a journalist? I think I always knew I wanted to do journalism or something in the arts. And don't ask me where it came from. And, and actually, by the way, when you sent me on a bit of information about you there yesterday, you said that there was no journalism in your family. Not at all. I mean, no. my parents were of a generation where people didn't really get beyond primary school. They might have gone to 14 years of age in primary But they didn't get beyond that. So, I mean, we were the first to go to second level and definitely the first, my sister and I were the first to go to third level Mm. in our family, Mm. our immediate family. And, um, I mean, back then in the 1980s, it was teach, uh, bank, nurse. There was no concept of of journalism or how you'd get into journalism. So I kind of dug in and did the degree in, in, in UCG at the time, an arts degree. And I opted deliberately to do politics rather than history. As my, I did English and I did politics rather than history so that I wouldn't be 
I wouldn't be tempted to go into teaching, that I wouldn't have the easy route to go into okay, teaching. Okay. So then I kind of had to think about it. You were very determined, so, with the I journalism. I was determined. And then yeah. I was lucky enough, um, DCU with NIHE in Dublin, as it was at the time, was just setting up a journalism courses, post-grad journalism courses. And they were doing interviews. And I was lucky enough, again, um, I had to do an interview to kind of show what I would like to write about. And at the time, Bree Dukes was managing the bell table and she really kindly and graciously didn't know me from a bar of soap, but did an interview with me. And on the basis of that interview, I got into, and obviously college results and stuff, I got into what was then NIHE and it was a really vocational course. And come here, you worked with the Galway Advertiser uh, and as, as well as that, you worked for all major newspapers in Ireland, as well as RTE and TG Cahar. But how did you get into the Galway Advertiser? We were put on placement. The course in Dublin was really, really good. It was run by um, an ex-journalist called John Horgan, who was um, who was involved in the Labour Party uh, at various points as well. And he was really good. And there was a very good um, ethos of placing people in either radios or newspapers. And I loved Galway and I wanted to go back to Galway and the advertiser at the time used to take people. I'm sure it still does. And I went in there and it was it was unique in that it was the first free paper set up in Ireland. And um, like the clear echo, like the clear echo now, but it was set up in the early 70s, early to mid 70s. Uh, by a guy called Ronnie O'Gorman, who had gone to London, seen the model in London and brought it back to Ireland. And it was fabulous in that there was huge um, focus on the arts. Yes. And that really floated my boat. And at the time, Galway was like Mockness were coming in on stream. The Arts Festival was getting bigger. Druid were finding their feet. So the, and there were loads of things like the Water Boys were around and about at the time. Sharon Shannon was kind of had moved to Galway and was was coming up. To, through the ranks and there were so many people doing interesting things and I was there and, and com- I was also doing politics but it was a lovely mix and come here Judy uh, I'm just curious why why go down the print journalism route had you w- w- did you ever consider working like here in radio or TV or I did and I love radio um, and I did a lot of radio in my freelance days but I think when I was in university or postgrad when I did my postgrad course the person who was doing radio I didn't really connect with them and I liked... It, it, could you expand on that? What, what do you mean by that? I didn't like them. Um, I didn't like the way they approached the teaching. It was like we were young adults and I found the person involved very disciplinarian and, okay. um, and it didn't... Uh, not encouraging. And, and I, I always... Like, when you sit down to write a feature or to interview someone with a feature, I still use shorthand, so you have a pen and a paper, you sit down and you have a keyboard. It was typewriters when I started, then computers and stuff... Um, which it, the technology is very simple. Mm. And when it comes to radio now, the technology is more simple. But back then, you had recorders, you had this, you had that, you had sound levels, you had all the things that you know about far more than I do. And I wasn't terribly technical. And I, I just found it all too daunting. And I didn't find the person in charge took that those sort of things into account. Because really, at the end of the day, the technology is only there so you can tell your story or yeah. do your interview or whatever. But I, I couldn't get, I suppose I couldn't with that person get beyond the bounds of the technology. Mm-hmm. Now, I did do quite a bit of recording later on for RT and things like that. But again, it was always something I, I was never quite as comfortable with as writing. Um, now, you've interviewed people such as Martin McDonough and John Mahoney. Could you, would you like to tell our listeners who them people are? Oh, well, Martin McDonough is often um, 
Hollywood at the minute, um, or Los Angeles, uh, ready to take the red carpet or whatever colour carpet it is for the uh, Oscars. Was yeah. oh, that for the Banshees of Inisherin? Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and he started out in Galway. He, he didn't start out in Galway, but he got his first big break with Druid Theatre Company when they put on uh, The Beauty Queen of Linan, which was the first play he'd had, ever had staged. And then they did the Linan trilogy, which was that, and two others, The Skull and Connemara and The Lonesome West. And there was a day of the, a trilogy in the Town Hall Theatre in the late 1990s. We were all sitting there and some of us thought, God, it's amazing. And some of us hated it. And nobody ever thought that Martin McDonough would go on to be... I mean, he was... Very famous, like, yeah. Yeah, as famous as yeah. he is. And John Mahoney then... Mahoney is how they pronounce it. Oh, Mahoney, uh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Was, was Cheers. Or Fraser. Fraser, yeah. yeah. He was the dad of Fraser. He was brilliant. He was brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Brilliant. So um, he would have come and do, done various plays in the Galway Arts Festival. So um, while he was doing plays and you'd be lined up to sort of do interviews with people like him, he was lovely. He became a patron of the Arts Festival. And what is your, I'm very curious to know what the day-to-day life is of a journalist. Could you explain to us what, what you do every day? Well, those are the glamorous bits and those are the kind of and some of it is uh, like I so yesterday I went and I interv- I did I do a feature interview every week a kind of a human interest and then I do an arts interview and then I do um, various kind of editing of its various bits and pieces that come in for arts pages so yesterday's interview was with a woman who has a unique approach to teaching Irish because Shocked and McGrail gets coming up and is on and stuff like that and this woman has a very interesting story to tell about how she got involved in teaching Irish to adults. So I did that interview yesterday and I will write it up on Monday. And I will write up an arts interview on Monday about stuff that's coming up in the Town Hall Theatre in Galway. And then other stuff will come in about other concerts. So the information will come in and I'll tidy it up and put pictures with stories and send the stories to the people who lay them out. Now, we were always together in a room doing this until COVID, whereas now Mm. you can work from home and we're all set up in a system and it's just extraordinary how well it has worked. You still... I like going into the office because you can. I was going to yeah. ask yeah. that. Yeah, is, mm-hmm. is there a, a noticeable difference now? Like, are you losing out in the camaraderie? I think there is a, an aspect of that. So I, mm. I wouldn't go in every day, but I go in mm. regularly because I think it's good to stay in touch with colleagues physically, face to face. So you're, you're mostly out and about. So I'm out and about. Yeah. But then on we have ve- we have a Connacht and we have a city paper. We have a city edition of the Connacht. So then local notes are a huge part of what we do in both Connacht and city. So I would, in the city version, I look after the local notes areas. So we have different parts of the city. You'd have the west side, city west. You'd have uh, Clada, you'd have Knocknacara, places like that. So notes would come in from people there. And then it's my job to put a bit of schmacht on them and to put pictures with them and stuff like that as well. And uh, has, has the technology these days made your job much easier in the sense, you know, putting up pictures, writing articles, that sort of thing? Oh, it's incredible. I mean, I, yeah, I, I sometimes think, you know... Compared to 40 years ago, as you said. Yeah, you'd have to write something on the back of a, a picture. You'd have to put the caption, type it up, make sure the caption didn't get lost or the picture in the caption, you'd have to hand it over to the people who did the pre-press who made up the pages and make sure like nothing got lost along the way and that the right picture went with the right story and stuff like that. It was much more um, labour intensive. No, I mean, what we're, because I suppose the industry has changed mm. and there aren't as many people in, in the industry now. Our jobs in some way, our, the, the work we do is harder because um, there aren't as many of us doing the same amount of work. Mm. But, um, but the actual process is much more streamlined, yeah. 
Can I ask, in terms of, obviously, there's so much news available. You've got social media and then you've got people that are reporting stuff that may not necessarily be accurate. But then also you might get more up to date information through the likes of Twitter. You get stuff that's happening live. How has that actually affected journalism in terms of protecting the integrity of journalism? That's a very, um, it's a tricky one because the speed doesn't always equate with accuracy. Uh, And sometimes it's good to be first, Mm. but sometimes Mm. it's good to have the story right. And uh, and things can go wrong when you when you put it up on Twitter and you think you have a kind of scoop ahead of everybody else. And it has gone wrong uh, for us as as well as for other people. Uh, I'm really wary of that sort of stuff. Yeah. I mean, I, it's great to have it. And of course, you can live tweet from council meetings and you can live tweet from stuff like that. But actually, if you're live tweeting, you're not listening to what's yes, going on. Yeah, That's absolutely. my thinking. Mm, and yeah. you can't you cannot do the two things. Mm. So from our perspective, we cover council and courts and HSE, the, the, the forum, the meetings and all those kind of things that really don't always get covered on Twitter and social media yeah. in terms of people who, like, we're journalists mm. and, and our first and primary, we're print journalists and our first and primary responsibility is to the print medium, not necessarily in paper format, but maybe online format yeah. or, or whatever, but not to sound bites because mm. I just don't think you could, you can give a headline, you can give a bit of information, but you kind of dig into a story and usually in a story, the detail what someone said at a council meeting might be in the fifth paragraph or the decision that was made. The, yeah. ex- the decision might be given in the first paragraph, but the explanations as to how it was reached mm-hmm. and the process. And that's really important. And that's important for local democracy yeah, to absolutely. know how these decisions are made yeah. and, and, and what people say. But do you find, though, are people in a way more dismissive or not really engaging with journalism because they feel that actually they're getting better information from people who may not have all the facts? Oh, yeah. It's a big yeah. problem. Yeah, and uh, you you mentioned, sorry, uh, Judy, you, Jennifer, you mentioned about fake news. I mean, how can people know the difference between what is fake and what isn't fake? I think that needs to be taught in primary schools. I think it it's now got to a situation where it needs to be taught in primary schools, um, and secondary school because people are being exposed to stuff that is just bonkers. Yeah, it and, is. It and is bonkers. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and you need the. Um, you need to be educated how to analyse stuff and how to how to filter what might. And of course, as part of your job, when you're when you're getting sources from wherever, you have to be very careful as well as a journalist to make sure that this isn't fake news as well. Oh yeah, and I mean, like, I'm, we're not above reproach. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I wouldn't for a minute say we're better or whatever, but w- what we are is accountable. And if you have an issue with something we write, you can take us to court, or you can complain us yes. to the press council. Or you can ring our editor and give him a turn of shreds or whatever. But we are accountable, whereas stuff that goes up on social media, there's very little accountability. And we have a huge problem uh, with sites that set up and lift stories that we we would, like people sent to, as I say, meetings, courts, who are paid a wage to do this by the company. Um, And sometimes you see a slightly varied version of it written by somebody who wasn't there at all or with the byline by somebody who wasn't there at all. Mm. Yeah. And you think, where did that come from? Mm. And I we've had issue, we've had like we've had to contact various mm. platforms and say, please don't use our yeah. stuff. And I think that the thing as well is because the news is saying what's going on. And I would probably have noticed it more recently in like more recent years. Obviously, we've gone through COVID. We're still dealing with it. But it's there's always and 
now this has gone wrong and this has gone and it's just very negative and by the time you're finished watching you kind of go oh god right <laughs> and so I know myself I tend to like I will usually check maybe the likes of the RTE app mm. um, BBC and the yes. Guardian but then I kind of stay away from news because I just find it all quite heavy and so how do you actually connect people back into the news without them feeling like it's just all doom and gloom that's very good and you're right particularly I mean, during Covid as well yeah. we, we can remember that to that too as well yeah well Covid was Covid was so difficult especially in the first days I mean from a practical point of view not being able to go into the office having mm. to set up like th- in my perspective theatre stopped music stopped everything stopped so what are you going to write about what, yeah. and, and again as you say not depressing people because people and I remember at the time doing an interview with a wonderful guy he's a professor of psychiatry in Trinity and he's from Galway originally and he had written a book a very short book very early on in Covid basically saying watch the news once a day check in, see what's going on, and then go off and live your life. Because the catastrophizing, it mm. just... And, 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 I mean, the world is a grim place at the minute. Yeah. And we have access to news 24 Four hours seven, of the day. Yeah. Mm. And we actually are not programmed mentally to be able to to filter and to process and to accommodate and to, to cope with that kind yeah. of news. Because, yeah. as you say, most of it's bad. Mm. So I like... Uh, I mean, our paper's different in the sense that like you know there will be HSE and there will be all the sort of like counsel and bad decisions being made or questionable decisions or you know stuff like that or waiting lists in hospitals but then you have sport mm. you have entertainment you have human interest um, so there's a diversity of stuff and that's the thing I think about about newspapers as well especially local newspapers yeah. I mean you know yeah. you try and connect people and Galway where I work is a huge county and sometimes you think someone in Port Umna mightn't have announced some interest in what's going mm. on in Clifton but if you you know if you tell it in a way that kind of makes the story interesting then they might have an interest yeah, I mean yeah. just because it's not in your area doesn't mean that the story yeah, isn't yeah, interesting yeah absolutely yeah. you know um, but it is a challenge mm. and I mean as I say we don't always get it right and mm. I would be very stupid mm. to think that, yeah, you know yeah. that we did but and you try yeah absolutely. and come here you I, I mean as your uh, during your time as a journalist you covered many headlines including the, the one that our listeners will probably all be f- very familiar with uh, the murder of Imelda Riney and Father Joe Walsh locally. Talk to me about that. What did you find out in the end? Oh, Lord, that was... I was at home one day and I was freelancing at the time and the Irish press was still on the go. You probably don't remember the Irish press, but it was a very good newspaper and it had a really good news editor. And he rang me and he said, there's a woman missing um, around Lockray, uh, Woodford, and asked me to go to the Garda station in Lockray. It was Wednesday evening, I think. Mm-hmm. And we went out and um, there was nothing. I mean, the guards were there, but they weren't at that stage overly concerned about it. And then it just built. And then Father Walsh went missing. And then uh, it became apparent. And then the whole thing started to weave together. And I spent a lot of time out there within in those few days. I mean, it was only a very short space of time, but it was just the intensity of it and knowing that this person was there and doing things and it was just and then I covered uh, Father Joe Walsh's funeral and um, it was horrific horrific and, yes yeah and the day that Brenda O'Donnell was arrested and brought to the Garda station Lockway I was there and it was and the day the initial charging before the case moved to Dublin I was there for that and it was really upsetting and I mean you t- think of the, wi- the woman and her ba- child and mm. you thought of the priest and you thought of this young lad 
locally who, who had just what had happened, how had it happened, and particularly for a small isolated area like Woodford, mm. I mean people were must have been in shock they were, and people were terrified yeah. at the yeah. time people were t- i mean terrified even, yes terrified, even yes. driving out there and going to places like people were just and i i mean you were driving yourself and you were thinking. You, it could be anywhere. Well, it's, like, it's that fear of the mm. unknown. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. huge. Yeah. yeah, and and you know, witnessing something that is kind of like, it's it's beyond anything you yeah. can ever. And and after that, that, so to speak, that ended that particular. And then about a week later, I woke up and Morning Ireland was on, and there had been a woman found in the boot of a car in Athlone oh gosh, uh, railway yeah. station, uh, pregnant yeah. and had been stabbed. And that was Philomena Galan. Yeah. And that was in, within the space of, it was all in the month of May in that year. Yes. And I thought, oh my God, did they get the wrong person? Yeah. yeah. And was the perpetrator guilty then in the end, was he? Yeah. Well, yeah. Brenda yeah. was yes. found guilty. Yes. This was a separate story, yes. but it was just in the space of such a short time in such a local area that these mm. two things had happened. It was, it was. Yeah, it just brings that fear and it takes so long to even mm. get, get that sense of actually we're okay. Yeah. Because you're just constantly looking at everybody that you know. Yeah. And so can I ask what's probably been a happier story that you have reported? What's been your favourite story to report? Can you think? Oh, Lord. I can think of a favourite story because you meet many wonderful people. But I have two. um, One uh, was a couple who had lost a child, uh, had a stillbirth and were organising a fundraiser for Felicon, the neonatal, the mm. stillbirth organisation. And I remember sitting in a pub in East Gaul with them where the, venue, where the event was going to happen. We had an interview in the afternoon and we sat in the function room with the pub drinking loads of cups of tea and chatting away and they had their little box with all the stuff that the hospital had given them when the baby had died. And they were amazing people. And our photographer at the time, d- discussing his own experience of, of having lost children as well. Mm. And I remember sitting there thinking, God, this is like, it, we're all the same. Like, mm. it, we all have such commonality. And the other is um, people who turned out to be, well, they were friends of mine, but they turned out to be really close friends who lost their only child in a car crash in 2006. He was a young adult. He was in his early 20s. Um, Martina and Dennis Goggin, and he was in a coma in the hospital for a few days after the crash in July. And when they had to turn off the life support, the hospital asked, could they, would they consider donating his mm, organs? Because mm. he was a really fit, healthy young man. Mm. And they did donate his organs. His, and as I say, he was their only child. And they subsequently went on to find this, um, found this garden in Salt Hill called the Circle of Life Garden, which is in the prom in Salt Hill, just across the prom between the Salt Hill and the Galway Bay Hotel. And it's a commemoration garden for organ donors oh, and wow. their families. And oh, yeah, lovely, and it's absolutely it? yeah. so yeah. people turning didn't negative. even know that existed. It's beautiful, yeah. absolutely beautiful. It's really worth. And they have re- re- representations of all the counties in Ireland, ah. and then representation stones mm. representation representing all the continents yeah. and various places. So stones. So it's medal. not just Galway-based organ donors. It's kind of it's everybody. Everyone. Isn't that absolutely wonderful? everybody? Yes. Yeah, so how people? So people who just I suppose. You know, life throws things at you and yeah. then you kind of, how you respond to them. And I that must be lovely to be able to actually report on that then. To be let into yeah, people's yeah, lives yeah. and yeah. stuff like that is mm. very special. And yeah. come here, just, I'm very conscious of time now, just just before we let you go, um, people in recent years have expressed their concerns about the future of media as a whole, particularly print journalism is what you're involved in. So what's your perception on that? Where do you see it in the future? I think if something isn't done as a 
to make to realise that things like courts, councils, and H- HSE forum meetings are public services. And that if there isn't something done to support that kind of journalism, because the influencers aren't going to write about that and the trendy people on Twitter and places aren't going to write about that. If something isn't done to support that, because those are the bedrocks of democracy, then I think we're in real trouble. And the Media Commission has been talking about doing it, but nothing has happened so far. So I don't know is the answer. I wouldn't be holding out hope. And hopefully it won't be a negative outcome, you know, but uh, we'll have to wait and see, as you said. Judy Murphy, uh, journalist with the Connacht Tribune, thank you very much for joining us on Saturday Chronicle.